Hi there, we're just going to... Hello, we're going to keep going now. Do you want to settle down? Um, we're now going to move on to the uh, economics um, issues. Obviously, tonight has been an absolute uh, political shock to the system. Um, and I'm going to get um, my colleagues on the panel to react to uh, the uncertainty that we've had, but then perhaps to also um, look back and see how economics and, of course, um, Brexit economics featured or didn't feature in the campaign. Um, don't forget, we're live streaming this, so by all means contribute questions on Twitter with the hashtag. If you've got questions in the room, I think you probably know the drill by now, you can write uh, your question down and submit it, and then I can put that to the panel as well. Um, very quickly, my name is Charlie Beckett. I used to be a journalist for about 20 years. I used to cover general elections, and I can't remember one quite as um, uh, surprising as this, perhaps 1992, but I can't remember one that was this chaotic. Um, I've got three fantastic economists with me, um, and I think the economists are actually feeling a tiny bit smug tonight, um, at least compared to their politics colleagues, because having been criticised for not seeing the economic crash coming, I think they can rightly see that um, perhaps the political experts didn't entirely predict the recent chaos over the last few years. And we're going to... Third, we're going to come to Vicky Price. We've got Stephanie Reichardt to my left, but we're going to start off with Tim Besley. Tim, would you like to go straight in there? Yeah. Shall we go? Well, or do it here, actually. Just, okay. just stay there. Very yeah. good. So I'll just say two, two or three words to, uh, to uh, kick things off. Um, I think one of the striking things about the, the campaign and to, sort of, to, to set the broad context is that we used to sit... I've been on many of these panels over the years, uh, and I particularly remember the 2001 election where you, you'd have needed a, a very thin piece of cigarette paper to, to describe the difference between the economic strategies of the two parties, of the two major parties. And what's been striking in this election has been a, a, an attempt by one of the major parties, namely Labour, to try and break with the economic consensus of, of more than a quarter of a century. And, the, of course, they've had... We, we don't know what the election result is, is going to be, and how far that's, uh, that's going to... Uh, well, it's pretty unlikely that their strategy will be something that will get implemented in the coming months. It's highly unlikely, but we are, we are seeing um, potentially a break with that consensus, and I want to follow through on that thought in a minute. In the near term, uh, as Charlie said, uh, and it's already begun, we're going to see, while the process of figuring out what kind of government we're going to have, a period of, of, uh, of, of turmoil in markets... Uh, it's already begun, for those of you who are looking at your, uh, your, your, your phones during the, when the exit poll came out, you know that the pound took a nosedive, and I think when markets open tomorrow, there'll be a certain amount of turmoil until at least it's established what kind of government we're going to have. But that stuff is really just the, the fog of war. That's not really the, the fundamentals. And what I could say a word or two about, a word or two about really is looking at the long-term economic challenges and, I mean, I think what was striking about the election campaign is how the Conservatives really said, trust us, we have a strategy, but we're not going to articulate in any clear-cut terms what that strategy is. Now, to be fair, the Conservatives had, in this, since the 2015 election, started to sketch something rather different to what the economic consensus already was, particularly in the realm of industrial strategy. So the, 
that the, the idea of having an activist government pursuing a particular industrial strategy had more or less gone out the window with Thatcher, and not even the Labour government post-97 was willing to introduce uh, any, any thoughts along those lines. So we were beginning to see one dimension of that consensus uh, changing. But where I think the big difference came in the election campaign was on, uh, on, on, the, on the side of public services and particularly on taxation. Now, I think what I think could come uh, positively out of this election is that we start trying to have a much more joined-up debate about um, the need to fund our public services properly. But sadly, I just don't think it's going to come by pretending we can tax the rich and raise corporation tax. I think IFS were quite right to call out the Labour Party on their strategy for saying it's simply infeasible. And th- th- let me just put that in context. Um, currently, we, ta- we take about 29% uh, of taxes are paid by the top 1%, and 59% are paid by the top 10%. This is an unprecedented high. The idea that there are all sorts of tax revenues available from taxing the rich is frankly pie in the sky, and Paul Johnson repeatedly said, said that, uh, and I think correctly so. Equally, when the, when, when the current government cut corporation tax, revenues increased, and there's no great surprise about that. So what we need to have is an honest debate, which has got to come by raising the core taxes on core people. And I think there's a, something I quite strongly disagree with was said on the first panel tonight, that what was being offered was a social democratic alternative. It is not. If you look in social democratic uh, countries, they raise taxes significantly on across the spectrum. They don't do it by only trying to tax the rich and corporations. So I thought the Liberal Democrat offer of at least raising uh, the basic rate of tax was the most honest tax policy in this election. Because if we're going to seriously fund our public services, and that is what the outcome of this election is telling us we want to do, we've got to do it by putting broad-based taxes up. And I think that's going to mean putting up the basic rate of tax and stop the policy of just taking more and more people out of tax, uh, which, which has been a policy that's been going since the coalition began in 2010. Great. Thank you, Tim. Stephanie, come to you next. Um, Tim has talked there about, you know, there should have been a debate um, about, you know, sensible taxation and so on. Do you think that in the wake of this election, and certainly this election result, that we are now more um, confused about what possible economic direction we might take? I think there's confusion, certainly. There's uncertainty. But I actually think there's a lot of consensus between the two parties in the direction they're going to take. And Tim sort of uh, touched on it. We've seen this shift from liberalism, from free market, from Thatcherism, to a position where both parties in their manifestos, and and Theresa May has already done it in government, are embracing industrial policy, where the government is going to pick winners and losers, where they're going to be actively involved in the economy. So I think there's certainly, there is uncertainty. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know what the government's going to be. But we know who's ever in government is going to take this pivot towards more activist government, a government that's going to be more active in the market, in the economy, that's going to be having an industrial strategy and industrial policy, something we haven't seen since the early 1970s. So I think that there's uncertainty, but we also can see that we can see yeah. where the winds are blowing us. Who, who, who do you think that business, or what do you think business is, was more frightened of 
Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister, which doesn't look like it's going to happen, or an uncertain Brexit deal? What do you think is the bigger factor there? That's a hard question. I know that 8% of small and medium-sized enterprises didn't, had confidence in Theresa May's manifesto. Only 8%. Yeah. So there wasn't this sort of business consensus around the Conservatives mm. that we might traditionally believe. But, I mean, Brexit is the big threat to the British economy on the near-term horizon. Yeah. That's got to be on everyone's minds, regardless of who's in government. Yeah. Vicky, come to you. Um, um, Yes, well, uh, I'll react a little bit to the industrial strategy bit. I, I don't really think that the Conservative Party produced the industrial strategy of any significance at all. So, uh, having been one of the people who used to write industrial strategies, you just tend to write them to satisfy uh, the, the, the sort of desire of ministers to intervene. Uh, but, of course, you don't give them any money, uh, or not very much. Uh, and you do lots of horizontal stuff like skills and so on, which are the, the backbone of the economy. That's what you need to do. So I don't think there's been a real change. They may call the department I used to work for the department for you know, the, the business, enterprise, and, and industrial strategy. So they put it on the tin, if you like, but it actually makes very little difference from that point of view. And what businesses felt throughout this entire campaign and since the referendum is that they were just not listened to at all. So businesses worry, of course, about Brexit. Nobody's telling them exactly what will happen. They have been fighting to keep uh, the UK in the single market. They've been fighting to keep the UK in the customs union. Um, but they're also worried about all the other costs that have been imposed on them, such as, you know, we may all think from a socialist perspective, we want to call it that, that in fact these things make sense, but the apprenticeship levy costs a lot. The uh, raising the minimum wage and having a living wage costs a lot. Uh, business rates cost a lot. And now, of course, having to pay an extra £1,000, soon to be two if we believe the, the, the Tory manifesto, though, of course, manifestos, given uh, the state of the parties right now, you just forget them. They're going to have to be rethought from scratch. Uh, if you have to pay £2,000 per, per foreign em employee, uh, look what will happen later in terms of migration. Uh, businesses need people to come in. There is no doubt that they're going to suffer if we get... Uh, net migration of anything below 200,000 a year. So actually they were dissatisfied with practically everything they've seen, certainly from the Conservative manifesto. Serious shock there that, that, that businesses were not listened to at all and their voice uh, was toxic rather than actually being helpful. And yet they're the firms that, that they're the, the organisations that employ all these people that produce the, the, the taxation which allows for the services to, to actually emerge. So, uh, and, and I think this is why Certainly the population felt more warmly towards uh, the, the Labour one, which at least offered uh, to, to sort out some of those public services. We may not think that they make a lot of sense, uh, but whether you look at the energy market, you look at rail, uh, the huge dissatisfaction that exists right now in terms of the provision of the services, national health, uh, we have basically abandoned a lot of the things that we thought were really important for a civilized economy through the sort of pretty terrible performance of some of the uh, organizations we privatize things to. Uh, but also, of course, the NHS, which has simply not been receiving enough money. Mental health, where uh, the funding has been cut. Regional growth. This government so far, of course, is a new government from now, um, has been talking about rebalancing and regional growth, but in fact the, the amount of money going to the regions has been cut significantly. If you look at the differences in the yeah. regions, uh, infrastructure spending really comes to London and the southeast and 
rather than anywhere else, hence why they want to do HS2, which of course is a white elephant. So, so a lot of things need to be rethought. And my concern about what was going on under the Theresa May government, and actually before, it's not only the impact of austerity in all the areas we've seen, police, uh, justice system, and everywhere else, um, which, uh, which in itself is, is sort of quite important, but the lack of evidence-based policy, uh, where but a lot of things were done... Talking of evidence-based, yeah. though, how did you... I mean, obviously... Um, in a way, Theresa May has lost this election, it seems. But Jeremy Corbyn has also, um, in a sense, won it. You know, he's done better than people thought. And that may have been a political message, but how coherent was their economic strategy overall? Did it signal, um, you know, the, the cliches a return to the 70s, or does it signal some, you know, new industrial social democratic economic policy? Well, a, a bit of the latter, really, but, of course, not particularly well articulated. And although it was costed, uh, there's no guarantee at all that the amount of money that was going to be raised, which I think was, Tim was suggesting, uh, would be raised. Because yeah. corporation tax, as we know, firms can just go and, 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 uh, uh, and book their, their, their uh, revenue somewhere else. Uh, rich individuals can just move their affairs. Uh, so there was a lot of concern about that. But at least what they did is they showed the direction they'd like to move to. Uh, actually, the Conservatives told us nothing uh, very much at all, and I think that was partly reflected in the result we've just seen. OK. Tim, um, it, it used to be said, you know, it's the economy stupid. Um, it's the economy that wins elections. And there were familiar tropes, weren't there, around uh, taxation, and then there was the horrible snarl-up around uh, welfare policy with the so-called dementia tax. Do you think, though, that this was a that economics played in this election, and do you think it will play, um, you know, going forward at all, or has Brexit dominated uh, the rhetoric of all this? Well, Brexit dominated the rhetoric, but one thing we have to bear in mind is that since uh, the uh, um, financial crisis, real wage growth in the UK has been in incredibly low. Uh, it used to uh, real wage growth was roughly year on year 4% in the period leading up to the financial crisis and since the financial crisis has been 2% and that's accounted for by a collapse in, hmm. uh, in productivity which of course there's been a, a, a positive side to that because we have record, record employment levels and partly low wages make it cheaper to employ labour but you could say that it's remarkable that the Conservative government has done as well as it has yeah. given the economic <laughs> backdrop to its whole period, and often including the coalitional mm. period. So if it was entirely driven by the economy, then you might have thought that already they, they, would, have, uh, they would have been kicked out in, yeah. in uh, 2015 rather than getting, getting a majority. But it's, I think, a feeling that many of the headwinds that are now f f um, uh, uh, flowing and, and holding up the economy are coming apart from Brexit, which, although that, the government called the... The referendum was not directly responsible for Brexit. That was the British people's decision. Yeah. And equally that uh, the initial shock to real wages came from the financial crisis, which of course happened on the watch of the previous government. But even so, that, that rhetoric that it's not our fault, I mean, there's only a certain amount of time they'll be able to hide behind that. Yeah. Um, hand in your questions if you've, you've got any. Um, they're, they're gathering the questions, like a prime minister going through a wheat field. Um, <laughs> Uh, Stephanie, I wanted to come back to you because you were suggesting that there wasn't so much differentiation 
which, again, goes against everything the Daily Mail has told me over the last few weeks uh, between the two parties. Um, do you think there, is, there, there are genuine economic choices, um, policy choices, going forward? Yeah, no, certainly. I don't mean to suggest that there aren't serious differences in corporation tax, right? 26% is what uh, Labour's proposing versus 17%. That's a huge difference in how they're going to fund social welfare programs and the NHS. So there are big and important and meaningful differences. The point I was trying to make is that, at least in industrial policy, there does seem to be uh, an agreement. All three major parties embraced industrial policy in their manifestos. They all said, you know, there is a lack of productivity in the British economy. What can we do? Maybe we can use industrial policy. So I think that's striking, that sort of consensus, because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you, it would be unthinkable for all, any yeah. of the parties to say, yes, let's l- use yeah. industrial well, policy. Well, I'm afraid there isn't an awful lot the government can do to improve productivity. What is going on? I mean, of course, they can spend more on, on skills, which take a bit of time, and they can, they can spend more on technology, which takes a bit of time, more, more on R&D and all that sort of stuff, yeah. maybe change some of the working practices if they can. But in reality, it's businesses that decide whether they want to invest and they have not wanted to invest because there is all this uncertainty. What have they done instead? They've employed people because they're cheaper to, to, to hire and fire, and they are therefore much more flexible uh, in terms of what they can do if things turn, turn down. And of course, given that uh, one of the real concerns about Brexit is that foreign direct investment, which has contributed significantly to our productivity growth, is not going to be coming in the same numbers as before, it's perfectly understandable that we are in the position we are in. Yeah. So, 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 yes, of course, we, we've all been talking about productivity. I was actually the person responsible for productivity in the UK economy for quite a number of years. There was nothing I could do about it, so I slept okay at night. But, <laughs> but it is a serious issue that we've all been... You know, but now we see the government range. making these deals, like with Nissan, for example, a, a secret deal we don't know what was promised, and that to me smel- smells like industrial policy. No, 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 no. Selective that smells to me as panic. For it was, <laughs> no. of panic. We well, reach well, for industrial pa- policy pa- when there's pause panic. There, pause there. Talking of panic, um, take some questions. The question from Ella Bennett from The People. Um, does Theresa May have a legitimate mandate for the Brexit negotiations? No. <laughs> <laughs> did, did anybody disagree? I don't disagree. No, I mean, she's, she's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that combine harvester in the wheat field um, did, <laughs> did, did for Twitter. Um, our man from uh, LSE says, do you think the costings... This is interesting, actually. Do you think the costings in the manifestos are useful? Um, so he- they so heavily reply on, you know, speculation from where government revenue comes from. And it's a genuine question, isn't it? You know, an era of fake news, etc., we ended up, I think, the last day with Emily Thornbury saying uh, the IFS figure of nine billion. Oh, we've got five billion in our back pocket, so it's only four billion. At that point, the British public, I think, are utterly confused. What do you think, guys? Is there anything that we can believe in any of these manifestos? Well, it's 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 true that you don't know at the end of the day whether the money you want to raise is going to necessarily materialise, but it can materialise in the short term. So. If you suddenly raise corporation tax, uh, then you can probably raise in the short term, which is what the IFS has said, the 20 billion that the Labour Party has said they would raise if you raise it from the current level of 19 to 26 and don't actually let it go down to 17. In the longer term, it can all go completely the other way. I think, as you were suggesting, that you can lower corporation tax and have more people prepared to stay in this country and actually pay it. 
Um, and so in the longer term, it can actually be considerably less than this 20 billion. And I think what the FS is saying is that you can't count on this 20 billion being there, but actually having a bit of costing that you can then comment on, like the FS has done, is good news. To have no costings like the, the, the Tory party yeah. had done, yeah. it's really bad news. So I think the people population, unfortunately, is not completely stupid in that respect. Can I, can yeah. I just come, there's a link here, though, to the, one of the debates that, that went on in the, in the Brexit campaign around the, the sort of tyranny of experts. The great risk, and I think the great mistake that the Labour made in their manifesto is to be too precise about those estimates. <laughs> Nobody seriously believes the numbers are, are even close. I mean, they could be plus yeah. or minus, yeah. in that case, 15 billion, just as it was true in the Brexit campaign. There were people coming out with, as if they knew what the cost of Brexit would be on the economy. Right? We have to be completely honest with people that we cannot predict with any precision. And those numbers were just way too precise to be credible. I know, but I mean, you must never try any manifesto as we know so so they just give you a direction of travel and and their aspirations yeah, at least you get an idea of course but but if they're not costed then the IFS says oh they haven't been costed if they're costed they say oh well they they may not actually lead you to this so you can't exactly win uh, but but we all know that manifestos are just ripped up look the way in which the Tory manifesto was already changed a second after it was produced. But so there was a promise in the Tory manifesto that, that held, and I remember Tim and I disagreed about this at last election night. They stuck to their promise about not raising taxes. No, no, they tried to raise them. The reason why they couldn't raise them, the national insurance contributions was a raising of taxes. Mm. So they, they tried to do that, and of course everyone reminded them that actually the manifesto that said they... They, they, they hadn't. So, 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 so that's why I think up to a point they called it selection, thinking that perhaps they can now start the new policy, whatever it is, and not be bound by the Osborne promises. And I think that was a sensible thing to do, but unfortunately it's backfired on them. You have to remember the 2015 election manifesto was written as a negotiating document for a, for a new mm. coalition with the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> it was not written as a manifesto. Yes, right. Very quickly, could we try and, try and hit some uh, thoughts about uh, what happens next? Uh, we've obviously got a currency speculator in the audience who wants to know um, the, the pound obviously has, 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 has slumped again um, any sense of you know in the short term what's going to happen what are the, sh the short term consequences not just the pound but just the very short in the next week or two you know the next few weeks what happens when you're, if you're in industry if you're in um, currency dealing etc share dealing how bad is it? Or do they all discount it all? Is it so sophisticated that they can absorb this temporary shock? What do you well, think? I, mean, I think? I think that you know, the, the stuff that goes on in financial markets, which is a kind of the casino side of the economy, yeah. the stuff that really matters is what Vicky mentioned. It's whether people put on hold investment plans. Yeah. That's where uncertainty really matters. And there's no question or doubt that already with a highly uncertain outlook, <laughs> Brexit... We're just layering uncertainty on uncertainty. And, and at the end of the day, we know that uh, it's private investment that will drive growth and productivity in the UK economy. The government can do a certain amount, but the, the, the amount that government would ever plausibly be able to invest in the economy is a drop in the ocean with what you would need from private business. And if that's being held up, both by the election result and by... The yeah. fact that we have no clue what's going to come out of the Brexit negotiations. I have no better clue tonight yeah. than I had yesterday. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and, and probably even less if, if that mm. was possible. Um, and you know, that's the kind of thing that we should be think is highly damaging. I think wh whether some guy on the right side of a trade in the city of London managed but, to make more or less money is really a side uh, no, but, but, but actually the, the exchange rate does give us an indication of what the markets think the UK economy is likely to do in the, long, in the short and longer term. And I think when, when, of course, we saw the big decline, and in, in, I remember being here on the referendum day and seeing the pound sort of going like this, uh, at roughly the same time uh, of the night or morning. Um, uh, but, uh, and now, of course, it's been helpful to manufacturing and so on. But then, when, when, because basically they assumed that the UK was going to grow more slowly, that the trade deficit would get worse, that's precisely what the pound exchange rate, the, uh, the sterling exchange rate reflected. And when Theresa May called the snap election, the pound shot up. I mean, it hasn't gone back to where it was, but it went up yeah. quite significantly, 129. We thought, oh, my God, it's going to reach 130 against the dollar. Isn't it fantastic? And it never quite did that. But, um, and why was that the case? It was because the markets assumed, believed the opinion polls, they believed that there would be a huge majority for, for Theresa May, and they believed that she would do two things. She would get rid of UKIP, which is basically what she's actually achieved, but also because of the big majority, she will silence the Eurosceptics, and she would go for a soft Brexit. That was the assumption of the market at the time. One of the reasons why it's reacting like this now is because they just don't know any longer whether that assumption they had made is correct. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about, it sounds like a political question about Brexit and the negotiations and the treaties. I'm thinking especially obviously around trade and uh, the single market and so on. And the fact that we've had this, we are now going to go through yet more uncertainty, possibly more delay, um, what's your sense as economists about the kind of deal uh, that Britain will be able to negotiate, who knows with which government? But does, the, does this kind of uncertainty change things? Does the increasing panic change uh, things, you know, politically, but I suppose it, with economic consequences? Anyway. So I'm an interloper here because I am actually a political yeah. scientist, so I, I'll start. Yeah. Um, we know there's good research that shows that the weaker you are at home, the stronger you are in international negotiations. So although this looks like a loss for Theresa May, it may actually be a win in the Brexit negotiations because when you go to the international bargaining table and you have a huge majority at home, you don't have a lot of leverage. If, if you're handed a 100 billion pound Brexit bill, they know that you can get that through your through parliament if need be. When you don't have that kind of majority, you go back to the negotiating table and say, I can't get this through my parliament. I can't get this through the politics at home. You need to negotiate with me. You need to sweeten the deal. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there is, there is indeed hope um, uh, that the stance may well have to change because we will need to perhaps compromise a lot more. And I'm, I'm you know, the, the, the nicest thing I can think of if this continues is that perhaps we never will leave uh, <laughs> because uh, of all the things yeah. that you've, uh, you've, yeah. uh, you've just discussed and because we will be compromising. So, mm -hmm. so, so what, what you said, which is quite interesting, is that, that actually uh, we'll be able to have the type of discussion which, which is fairer in the end and, and, and a bit of give and take. Whereas where we are now, it seems to me, instead of taking back control, we have been supplicants. Now we depend entirely on will, the, will Europe be nice to us? Are they going to let us do this? Are they going to let us do that? But we are definitely going to be ending up in a worse position than where we were. Uh, maybe this will make people rethink. Maybe the economics will finally, the stuff that was missing in some way from from uh, the election debate will come back and, and there will be some evidence-based policy 
that is, is pursued in the future. And, and if we indeed have five years and we have a big transition period that is also thrown in it, who knows? Maybe we'll be in a better place. Let me tell you, what, what, there's, a, there's an angle on this, though, that, that, that I think we shouldn't overlook, which is a lot of the uncertainty around the Brexit deal is actually stuff that's in the control of the British government, which is the kind of migration policy we end up with at the end of this. The biggest negative shock to the productivity of the UK economy will be if we undermine the skills base of this. We have proven ourselves unable for, for now two generations to produce people at the low end of the skill distribution who are fit to work in a modern economy. It's a shame on, the, on Britain that we have systematically been unable to, to cope with that challenge. And so we, the one thing we've been able to do is, to, is therefore to bring workers in from abroad to make up for the deficiencies of our own school system. And we don't know what kind of arrangement we're going to have till Brexit is done and dusted. So the, I, for me, and if I was running a business, which, I, which I'm not, one of the biggest things I would concern, be concerned about is, is the skills base of the UK economy going to be further undermined by having a Brexit deal in which the government has to, for political purposes, put up a barrier to bringing in the kind of people who are contributing so much to the skills base of the UK. And I think that's the key uncertainty, and that uncertainty is only higher, because I don't, we don't know, and I thought Theresa May's stance on, uh, on, on migration, sticking with the, 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 the migration targets, just further undermined that... Well, this uh, is why I think that perhaps this might, might, might soften this, but who knows? Who knows where we'll end up? Uh, and, and I think you're quite right. But of course, remember... But it isn't just a question of do we produce enough skills. It's do, do we produce enough jobs for those people with skills to do? And one of the interesting statistics is that 58% of the graduate jobs that are being done now, jobs being done by graduates, are in, non, in, in jobs that don't require graduate skills. So as a nation, we haven't actually been producing enough skilled jobs themselves, which is quite a worry. So... So there, perhaps, our education system is up to a point to blame, but it's also the conditions we set up for firms that work here. That's where, actually, government can intervene. Yeah. And how much of a sense did, did anybody get, any, any of you get any sense of um, what uh, our approach to Brexit might be from this election campaign? Did anyone get any kind? No. I mean, obviously, it's now all in tatters, but... Did anyone get a, any sense of, of, of how it is going to proceed? No, but I, I, let me state a rather extreme view, which is what view I still hold today as I did yesterday, is it's not really down to our choice. Right. I think at the end of the day, what comes to us from Europe will be pretty much predetermined. And the, I think it's sort of pie in the sky that we're in this incredibly strong negotiating position, whatever kind of government we have, to be able to get any kind of deal out of the European Union. Right. That's the view, and that hasn't changed one bit. And I don't think it'd be any easier or harder. We could have a government with a 2,000 majority, and it would still be true. Yeah. And how well do you think we are equipped? I mean, uh, in terms of economic literacy, or even political economic literacy. In, I mean, I'm thinking of Boris Johnson. Um, I'm thinking of da I don't mean to be rude. I'm thinking of David Davis, and so on. How well do you think we are equipped? I mean, these, who, if if they do manage to form a minority government and somehow. Um, have to pursue Brexit, they're going to be under extraordinary political strain. But how well do you think they are equipped in terms of, you know, a, a, a political economy strategy, an economic strategy to, to deal with Brexit? Well, I would say the strategy is to make sure you have... I, I would say give up on getting a deal from Europe. Let's focus on the things that the British government can do. 
and the British government can, can, can invest in skills and projects. They should read, by the way, the LSE Growth Commission report Indeed. Uh, three months ago, which came up with a very clear plan of what could be done for the UK economy that doesn't rely on the cooperation of 27 other countries to implement it. We should be focusing on what are the policies that could be done by a, by a government here. And, of course, that doesn't mean we should give up on negotiating the best deal, but I think that's the political economy we should be pursuing is taking a view of what the best policies are for the, for the UK government to implement. We're almost out of time, but Stephanie and then Vicky, your last thought. What comes out of, what, would be, what is your best hope economically that comes out of uh, this political wreckage? So going forward, I guess the best hope would be that there is a compromise if there is a minority government, or even if there's a coalition government, that it's going to mean that when you're negotiating Brexit, you can't you can't take a hard position. You have to compromise. And when you're negotiating with Brussels, you're like, I can't get that through my parliament. So my hope is that this isn't the win that Theresa May was looking for. It wasn't the win the Conservatives were looking for. But it may ultimately be a win in terms of negotiating uh, a reasonable Brexit. Great. Vicky? Well, it's, it's not really negotiating because we can't really negotiate anything very much. It is, it is how much we're prepared to give. And I think... Uh, uh, it, we this might allow us, but it could go completely the other way. Maybe the, the real right-wingers of the Tory party will take over. Who knows? Um, but I think uh, certainly Labour has been arguing, very inconsistent and not terribly coherent themselves, but they say we're not going to put a migration target because we want to see what it means for the economy uh, first. Mm. So, so that gives you a little bit of hope, although, as I said, that's slightly incoherent, not you know, quite clear, but they're going to have to to, to be clear in the future. Maybe they were just fudging it just to get to this point where they are now. But I think it's just taught us something about elections, if I may, uh, particularly this, this election. I mean, remember, I mean, there is a little party which, if we believe this, is going to have an increase in, in their uh, MPs, which has been arguing for a second referendum. And anyone who wants a second referendum has been shouted down. Uh, and you, know, you can understand that perfectly. You don't want to repeat that. And obviously people have shown now that they don't necessarily like elections very much and they like to get rid of the people who call them. But it is interesting. How can you say that we're not going to have another referendum uh, because the people have voted? And then you say, actually, you also voted in the general elections. But we don't like what you said. We want a bigger man mandate. Yeah. I don't want opposition. Opposition. I want a bigger, yeah. a bigger majority. So we're going to have another election. So the two are completely inconsistent. If you're going to have a second election, you can have a second referendum. So there is no consistency in that argument. And, and, uh, and we've seen what happens if you call this election on completely false ground. Great. Well, I have to say, this election has been such good fun. I really want another one soon. <laughs> <laughs> How about, hands up if you want another referendum. Uh, you're not going to get one. Anyway. I didn't uh, ask for one. Stick, no, you didn't. Stick, uh, stick, stick around because we're going to be, dis um, my colleagues are going to be discussing defence and foreign policy in a minute, but I'd like you to thank my three very fine panellists. Thank you. <laughs>